Hello and welcome to Death of a Thousand Cuts, making you an awesome writer, one cut at a time. My name's Tim Clare and this is a show for writers about writing, specifically about how to write more and better and feel happier while you're doing it. Our USP is that the advice here is not shit. It's a corner of the market no one's really sought to exploit yet, not sure why. If you're new here and that dollop of unnecessary bombast and venom right out of the gate has set you agin me. Rest assured I shall indulge in moments of charming vulnerability later on that will bring you right back on board. And welcome to you. And of course, if you've been here before, then welcome back. I'm so glad you can join me here today for some writing advice. I mean, advice is, is too much. Writing suggestions writing serving suggestions look to, to mark our 100th episode a while back i put out a listener survey and aside from confessing that more than half of you haven't bought my book although you intend to it's all right don't worry it's only three decades of craft and the means by which i feed my family you take your time most of you gave me an almighty bollocking for not having done many first page critiques lately well, never let it be said that I don't respond well to criticism. Here today, right now, we're going to read the first page of a listener's novel and look at ways of making it better. If you've never heard one of these episodes before, this is the line-by-line -line critique of a piece of fiction sent by you, the listener, upon which Death of a Thousand Cuts made its admittedly small reputation. But back when we were a blog, this is all I did. Um, so it's presented by you. The listener, I mean, in the plural sense, the royal listener. So I strive to be frank and exhaustive in these ones because I think there's fuck all feedback out there for writers that manages to be both honest and actually good and practical. I, I often get emails from you guys saying you love the show. Thank you very much. And you're, quote, building up the courage, end quote, to submit. A few of you are... An alarming number of you, in fact, have even included the phrase, be gentle with me. Uh, I'm genuinely not sure what you're worried about when you're submitting. I'm not ritually deflowering you. I'm not some cad baron in a sexy period romp. I'm not even an agent or uh, an editor or someone with any power to influence your career. Although I know many editors and agents do listen to this show. Hi, guys. Look, I'm just... I'm just a hairy guy alone in an office, which I, I realise does still sound quite intimidating. But I just mean, look, to, to reiterate what's being judged in these episodes, and I, I've said it before, but since there's been a little bit of a break, uh, I just want to say it again. What is being judged in these episodes is not you. It's the text, and, and the text is, is malleable corrigible we're not performing a final evaluation and assigning a grade on it that's not the purpose at all this isn't a review this is on a work in progress a draft is just it's just a plan a hint a gesture towards the thing you need it to be we can cut words we can rearrange them so often as writers we're told that self-doubt is bad now doubting your own personal worth yes that is bad and by bad i mean just flatly incorrect and unhelpful you're wonderfully worthwhile and you're valuable by virtue of being a human being. And I think that's true. And it's not... It, when I used to hear other people say things like that, I thought it was incredibly glib. It was the kind of thing that um, Paris Hilton would tweet. And it just... It seemed vapid and not true. And, and I think through the experience of having suffered with my own mental health problems and by becoming a dad and just being like a human being in the world and seeing how vulnerable we are, I've really changed 
to feeling it's an important thing to say and it's an important truth that we need to reconnect with a lot like as human beings like people go well, i'm not valuable oh well this is a kind of general a sort of point of philosophy that isn't very important look we seem ubiquitous as humans right because we're surrounded by each other in this in this tiny ball of of gas like we are living in this tiny cloud of gas like wave your arms up and down and you'll feel drag that's like we we're surrounded we're living it like fish in this gas and and that's the only reason we can survive nowhere else in the universe that we know of we can live right and we we are in, in it, because we're surrounded by each other we think we're we're no big deal but like in cosmic terms both spatially and temporally we are fantastically miraculously rare and you are a rarity within rarities because you're the only you who's ever existed, the only you who ever will exist as far as we know. And I say that without schmaltz or, or glurge. I'm, I'm not. It's just true. It's just actually factually true. And I say it utterly sincerely. You are incredible and miraculous. You are unique and you're so, so precious. It is just a fact. And also, sometimes your writing will be shit. Sometimes it will be dog shit. Sometimes it will be like that white 70s dog shit that you used to see on British pavements. And look, often your writing will be shit when judged against the standard of your favourite novels, right? Often it will be shit when judged by that standard. If you never hear another thing I say, hear this and take it to heart. Sometimes your writing will be shit and that's okay. It doesn't make you shit. Sometimes your writing will be shit and that's okay doesn't make you shit. It doesn't even make you a bad writer for fuck's sake. And just like actual dog feces you can apply some relatively simple hygiene protocols to transform it into a nourishing and satisfying meal the road from bad to pretty good in writing is a short one and a fairly straight one as well but you make it 10 times longer if you spend the entire journey journey punching yourself in the head whispering god i'm so useless i'm so stupid for even trying god this is humiliating everyone must think i'm a fucking idiot i should give up now so Let's just jump straight into this, um, and I'm going to give you, like, I'm, on this program, I never hold back my secret sauce. There is no secret sauce. It's just a bunch of, like, really down-to-earth practical techniques, and I'm going to teach you those now, or at the very least remind you of um, really simple techniques that you're going to be able to apply to your writing the moment you finish listening to this podcast. I guarantee you, you're going to learn something uh, in, in the next 15, 20 minutes that you're going to immediately be able to apply to make your writing better. So, and these are subroutines that you can just run, right? They're just like they're just like little principles that you can then just apply whenever you write. And, and all you do is you run them, you make the necessary changes to the text in front of you, and you watch your writing go up a band in quality. That's all there is to it. Like, I'm editing a big project of mine at the moment, because, and that's one of the reasons why I haven't done one of these episodes in a while, because... I'm doing it on my own work and I'm a little bit busier and these ones take a lot more effort for me and I'm always going to do them. They are the bread and butter of this show. There is no point when this podcast is going to evolve into something that doesn't involve me looking at people's first pages, 
be assured this will always be a part of the show and it will always be a core part of the show but I'm work I'm editing my own work at the moment and I just I need to prioritize that and I've just had a bunch of authors who've been able to do interviews recently so that's why it's been a while since I've done them I'm not phasing them out in any way I I, I enjoy doing them they just take me a lot of time to do well but this is the same process. The process I'm going to share with you today is the identical to the process I use for editing my own work. It, if you have learned to use the internet and download this podcast to stream it, if you're listening to me now, either through an app or whatever, you have the necessary intelligence and uh, technical uh, prowess when it comes to complexity to do this. You can fucking do any of these things I'm about to tell you and you'll be able to understand them. I promise. Oh, and once... We're done here. I'm going to tell you how you can submit uh, an exa- a sample of your own work to the show, maybe to be used on a future episode. Right, no more delay. Let's go. Um, and I will include uh, the text of this piece in the on my website, timclairpert.co.uk, so you can jump there and there'll be a post with today's episode and you can go and I think today's tw- episode 29. Uh, season two episode 29 Uh, so you can go and read the text on the website and if i can fit it into the show notes i'll stick it in the show notes as well and you can read it there it tends to get a bit mangled uh through a lot of uh podcast catching apps if i dump the whole text in but um definitely on my website timclairpert.co.uk if you want to you can pause now and go on that so you can read along with me and see what i'm referring to um right this piece is but i'm going to read it out now as well this piece is uh called the dentist And it's by Morgan. Thank you very much for submitting, Morgan. Joy wore a short black cotton dress, her hair tied back in a blonde ponytail. Around her neck was a thin golden chain with her star sign, a ram's head. I'd given it to her when we first met. I wore an open-necked pale blue shirt under a dark blue suit. It brought out the colour of my eyes. We were celebrating my first proper television role. The restaurant terrace shimmered gold the candle flames restless in the breeze from the ocean. The crashing waves drowned out the piano tinkling through the speakers. I'm proud of you, honey, said Joy. A speaking role. Let's hope I don't develop a stutter. Ah, that would be adorable, said Joy, pinching my cheek. Ow! Oh, sorry, honey. Is that the bad side? It's okay, I said. I'm just minding it so it'll go away sooner. You know, started Joy. Our starters arrived, ending the conversation. I had curried oysters, Joy had asparagus salad. My mouth throbbed. I'd almost gotten used to it. I was pretty sure the tooth was rotten, that the cure would be worse than the disease. Lost in these thoughts, I bit down on a mouthful, and a sharp pain jolted my head. There was a hard lump in my mouth. I held my cheek and went to the bathroom. At the mirror, I picked a cracked and rotten piece of tooth from my mouth was laced with blood and the smell of seafood. And here are my suggested edits. Joy wore a short black cotton dress, her hair tied back in a blonde ponytail. So let's acknowledge a couple of positives. This sentence is clear. It's not pretentious or ambiguous. It conveys what it intends to convey. That's a surprisingly hard feat for a lot of writers, including me, because English is like an ancient laptop with years of software updates and patches, and it barely makes sense. And there's all these contextual nonsenses floating around it that we use to make sense of it. And and we are 
nonetheless stuck with it. So genuinely, unsarcastically well done. A lot of the submissions I get have sentences that try to do something like literary and complicated and uh, and, and and crap their pants in the process. So and, and so it is genuinely really hard to write a simple, understandable, comprehensible sentence. People don't think that that would be a sticking point for writers, but it is. And it is for me sometimes as well. So well done. Simple is good. Also, you name a character in the sentence. You name Joy. We have a human and not you don't open with some abstract philosophical proposition or an empty landscape. It's not an absolute rule that you must have a human in the first line of your story, but it's certainly the most straightforward way of generating reader investment. If you do something else, that's fine. Uh, You can definitely get away with just laying down some kind of like ideological proposition or giving us an empty landscape and, and, and being very beautiful with it. All of these things are principles rather than unbreakable rules, but um, I, I just think a lot of people break them without realising that they are... With, without realising that they've made a choice to do it, they're just kind of guessing. So, in any case, good. Now, Morgan, as I said in my introduction, uh, I'm not critiquing you here at all. Thanks for submitting. You're an awesome human being. And I mean that sincerely. So look, we are free with with that with that contract in place and with that understanding and, and knowing that that's genuine for me. Um, this is not even a critique of you as a writer. This is just a critique of this piece of writing, which is a work in progress and in flux. It is not locked down. It is not finished. So we're free to be honest, direct. We're having fun here because writing like it is funny and it's tricky and, and we're making stuff better. And, and that's joyous. This is a fucking dreadful first line. It's so, so boring. Joy wore a short black cotton dress. Joy is the most generic woman in the world. I I, I can feel her reverting to a grey amorphous blob as I read her description. Like, there's no challenge here at all. I feel like if you went round the high street with a microphone and said to to random passers-by, okay, picture a woman, what's she wearing? 90% would blurt out dress. It's like the first thing that your mind, that our prejudice bias mind just farts out. But ah, you've modified it with three whole adjectives, right? Three chances. To take Joy's dress, this blank dress, and transform it from mediocre anonymity to surprising, idiosyncratic, voluminous suchness. Short, black, cotton. No! You've taken a boring statement. Joy wore a dress. That's your opening line, right? Joy wore a dress. And you've, and you've slowed it down by adding... Because three is a hell of a lot of adjectives to append to a noun. By the way, even if each one is a freaking juicy peach, you've slowed it down to make it plain. Oh, by the way, just in case you were wondering, this isn't, this isn't just any dress. Oh, no. It is the most fucking forgettable dress in Joy's entire wardrobe. Short black cotton. Why does her dress matter? Why is it the first thing you've told us in the story? And and why then is it so boring if you're going to front load? Like the opening line of a story uh, carries this huge amount of semantic and thematic freight. I've said this before and I'll say it again. And look, sometimes the reader's introduction to your world can be very gentle. You know, you don't, you, they almost don't notice it. They just glide straight in to a story. You don't need to lead with some crazy uh, 
thing that completely upends all their expectations of what the world is. It can be very gentle. We can just start moving into a story so they just feel like you're just slipping them into a warm bath so they hardly know. Sometimes you can own it and be very directly like, welcome to my tale of peril, fair reader. Sometimes the opening sentence of your story is like a little chocolate mini roll on the end of a fish hook, right? And and the reader sort of goes to eat it and you just go and you start reeling them in. But there's got to be some reason why the human being on the other side of the page goes, all right, I will exchange some of the finite store of minutes I have left on this world, processing the words you've arranged and imagining the completely made up bullshit they gesture towards. Like it, reading is, it, it, <laughs> reading and writing are such weird ways to spend our time. But then, like I was saying, all human life is profoundly weird, Morgan. Uh, but we can't see that because we're immersed in it, you know, like fish wrapped in the coldness of the ocean. What I'm asking you here is what I'm trying to make you briefly conscious of. Because it sounds horrible then. You're going, oh, God, how can I possibly, given given that we're all going to die, how could I possibly have an opening sentence that seemed like something people would want to do? Don't they just like want to stand on the edge of a cliff, like watching the sunset and crying? Well, what I'm... But I think it's important to think about these things because they are truths, right? These are the things that we're building everything else on. It seems like an odd uh, context to consider your writing. What I'm asking is, what is the offer your opening line is making? What's your bid here? Why should we care? And I, and I mean, I know you, could, you anyone can just react, why should I care, to literally every piece of literature and indeed event in human history. Call me Ishmael. Why should I care? It, it was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Why should I care? I mean, you, it's not a great... That sentence in and of itself is not a great test, but like, I don't know. It's, it's for example, a joy wore a dove grey dress, a rayon spandex blend, cinched under the bosom with a large belt. Joy... Joy worried at the sleeve of her bright orange Charmander onesie, where the cuff had gone lazy from too many trips in the tumble dryer. Joy rushed into the printers in a dark green velvet coat and felt bonnet, slapping snow from the ostrich feather poking from the top. Now, I don't know anything really about clothes or fashion. They freak me the fuck out. I I, I get dressed like I'm wrestling an invisible bear, I have the dress sense of a rotary washing line. But two things. One, most characters still wear clothes in your world, right? Unless you're writing in a nudist colony. So there will still be clothes in your story, whether you make the effort to describe them well or not. Two, if you just fudge the description, if you're gonna if you're going, well, I'm gonna describe these clothes, but I don't know, you damage that quality which is so valuable to every author. Your authority authority literally contains the word author right they are they are, if you want authority you, you you want to sound like you know what you're talking about even if you don't like so much of this is like creating the illusion it's like make, it's like making a painting that there's a certain amount of throwing things up to suggest the rest of the world that doesn't really exist and the reader's brain just kind of fills it in but you want the reader to feel like you are the god of your world. And like in each of the, those examples I just gave above, um, we get a distinct... We not only get a distinct sense of three different versions of joy, 
we get clues about the viewpoint character who's observing her too, right? Because like the first narrator, if, if Joy wore a dove grey dress, a rayon spandex blend cinched under the bosom with a large belt. Now I just made that shit up, but they sound like they they sound like they might have a passing interest in women's fashion. The second one. Joy worried at the sleeve of her bright orange Charmander onesie where the cuff had gone lazy from too many trips in the tumble dryer, right? The second one clearly knows something about the rudiments of Pokemon. Also, they know that that onesie has been round and round in the tumble dryer, so they must know Joy reasonably well, right? They must have known her for a while. The third one, um, Joy rushed into the printers in a dark green velvet coat and felt bonnet slapping snow from the ostrich feather poking from the top. The third one apparently doesn't think that Joy's archaic mode of dress is especially remarkable, so immediately... That crunchy specificity. There it is, guys. My boy. My boy. The crunchy specificity isn't just about making your prose self-consciously quirky. It's about cramming the most information into the smallest space. So from line one, your story just goes spring and spills clues and connotations all over the page. And and that takes walking past your first, second, even third impulse and finding something to fill that space that rewards the short black cotton dress. It's just a big old pile of unbuttered white bread. Crunchy specificity isn't about stacking broad adjectives onto a dull noun. It's not about volume. The tall, nice, old man isn't crunchy specificity. So next part of the sentence, her hair tied back in a blonde ponytail. There's nothing wrong with a character having a blonde ponytail. But again, I, I just can't help but feel you're in such a rush to start the game that you you skipped through the character creation scene and clicked default. If you gave this description of Joy to the police, she would never be caught, Morgan. This is your first sentence. And, and how does this information prove to be important to the scene that follows? That's right, it doesn't. You might as well have told us she has... Two eyes or once ate mushroom soup. The final thing I want to highlight in this first sentence, at least, is the cadence. Joy wore a short black cotton dress, her hair tied back in a blonde ponytail. Now, of those 15 words in your first sentence, 13 are single syllable. Only cotton and ponytail stand out. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm a big fan of single syllable words. My goodness. If you want your prose to sound bold and epic and timeless, hit those one-beat words. This gives me, actually, a fantastic excuse to play you a very short clip from the first episode of the original 1959 series of Noggin the Nog and Oliver Postgate's famous opening sentence. Now, I just want you to listen to this. It's it's tangentially relevant, and I think it's useful for for us all to listen to this, just to remind ourselves. um, This opening sentence... Uh, contains only one two-syllable word, and that's the word very. In the lands of the north, where the black rocks stand guard against the cold sea, In the dark night that is very long, the men of the Northlands sit by the great log fires and they tell a tale. Isn't that beautiful? In the lands of the North, 
where the black rocks stand guard against the cold sea. In the dark night that is very long, the men of the Northlands sit by their great log fires, and they tell a tale. But look, each noun in that is limited to one adjective. Black rocks, cold sea, dark night. There is an exception, great log fires. But I'd argue that log fires is such a tight noun phrase, log fires, it feels like it's the same thing. It's almost a compound noun. And very long modifies night. That's true. So it actually has two adjectives and an adverb, but it is placed afterwards. So there isn't the thud, thud, thud of adjectives all stacked in a row. Short black cotton dress sounds like a corpse falling downstairs. Anyway, next line. Around her neck was a thin golden chain with her star sign, a ram's head. Look at that. That's so much fucking better already. She has a goddamn golden ram round her neck. See how when you're specific, when you pick a thing and you commit to it, the story just pops. One nitpick, I'm guessing her star sign is Aries, not a ram's head. Like like Aries is the entire ram, not its disembodied head. I I know it sounds like I'm being pernickety, but that, but that it would be weird if the avatars of the Zodiac were all normal, except for one that had been gruesomely decapitated. We'd all be like, oh, jeez. You were born under the murder sign. Let's see what your horoscope says. This week, Aries, Mars enters your house of finance, leading to conflict at work. Expect to instigate an armed siege or water cooler shanking on the 17th. Oh, God. But otherwise, aside from that and that one uh, little little nitpick, it, this is nice. I still wouldn't open with this line. I, I'm not sure I especially care about it yet. But the prose is clear. And, and you, enter, you end the sentence on the most interesting piece of information. The ram's head. Primacy, your recency affect my dudes, my dudettes, my, my ducks. Um, I had given it to her when we first met. Umph. So here's where we finally learn. A, this is a first person narrator. B, he is a character in the scene, observing joy. I mean, I'm saying he, that is, that is a total assumption. We don't actually get agenda at any point but the mention of the open neck shirt and blue suit suit certainly nudge our filthy hetero patrio cis normative minds towards that conclusion you don't have to uh, wrestle the reader's biases if that's if that's the case and and, and actually this person is not a man uh, a lot of well-meaning editors actually will, will ask you to flag up or comment on or otherwise make a song and dance about a character's ethnicity or, or gender or sexuality so the reader doesn't slot them into a whole bunch of, of cultural defaults. And, and it, is, it is completely up to you. This is your world. You're the boss. But I'd suggest, I'd certainly float the possibility, I'd certainly ask you to consider that you don't have to do that work for the reader if you don't want to. It's kind of on them. Otherwise... As authors, we're just reinforcing the standard that non-white, non-cis, non-straight, non-disabled, non-male characters are the core model and everyone else is like a, a kind of series of Mr. Potato Head pieces bolted on top. Uh, and, and other people may have more nuanced takes than that, but that's just I'm just saying you don't you don't have to painstakingly work to um, to, to make readers 
challenge their own biases if you just want to get on with telling a story that's kind of on them that aside it, it's good that you use this line to crowbar in a little backstory that these two are presumably in a relationship incidentally i think it might be better to say when we first got together i had given it to her when we first got together i doubt very much he gave a golden ram's head necklace to her the very first time they met that would be coming on pretty strong i wore an open-necked pale blue shirt under a dark blue suit i I literally don't give a fuck this is just like this just reads like the world's shittest fashion show i i feel like the narrator is pestering me into phone sex what are you wearing uh just my pajamas why is he so interested in his own generic dull as balls clothes he's the viewpoint character you're asking us to orient his eyeline down so he can contemplate his smart casual navel it brought out the color of my eyes this is such a peculiar thing for someone to think about themselves and that's okay no no narrators can be weird unpleasant sarcastic in fact they should probably be some or all of those things but i'm not sure this line exactly reveals him to be wry or odd because it's not picked up again i don't see any evidence yet it's some ironic or knowing or self-aware remark it just feels like you're having him describe himself externally so the reader can picture him I can't remember the last time I thought about the colour of my own eyes, which I just feel like a line like that undermines the authenticity of his perspective. And look, as readers, our trust in your story is very fragile at this stage. It's as brittle as a popper dom. In, in your first page, you have to make some down pair payments where you go, look, I'm a safe pair of hands. I'm going to take you on a journey. You're going to feel things. You're going to learn things. You will not be the same person by the end of this story that you were at the beginning that to me feels like a strong bid and sometimes established authors with a big fan base don't have quite the same pressures on them to do that there's an assumption they sort of semi know what they're doing so if they want to they can they can probably take more risks and people will stay with them longer going well they're probably going somewhere with this now I'm not sure every uh, best-selling author feels that way there are definitely other pressures going on and I'm not in that position and I never have been certainly not yet so maybe let's stick a big old asterisk at the end of this uh, whole paragraph that leads to the footnote possibly bollocks we were celebrating my first proper television role now I think as a reader it's worth noticing which bits of the story make you sit up which bits make your attention palpably lift because if you can work out what's happening there when your attention rises that isn't happening in other bits oh my gosh you will have cracked it like once that detector is fully honed that ability to go oh this feels like a this feels like the exciting bit that ability to recognize key sentences or moments once you have honed that detector your redraft your redrafts your redrafts <laughs> what am i doing i'm redrafting once that detector is fully honed your redrafts will be this carnival of slaughter as you cut every sentence where the feeling isn't there or you improve the sentence so it's more interesting because you can't you can't just like prettify and edit every sentence you've got to make it interesting regardless of content some stuff is just you fucking stacking chairs when the scene's already over and the reason it is dull is because we don't need to know it like 
once you know what you're looking for and what that feeling is once you've practiced it and I think you can do this by reading other people's stuff as well especially some of the things we do on this podcast listen to the episodes we've done so far go on the blog and read them and and, and you'll get a sense for it it takes time but you build it up and you'll be like oh I don't need this line where she puts her keys in her pocket We, we don't need to know that I'm not feeling engaged cut the reader won't miss it they won't be like wait a minute did this character remember to take her keys with her? I didn't see any explicit acknowledgement of that. It's so liberating when you get that and internalise it. Now, this line here, we were celebrating my first proper television role. This is one where my attention did lift. I was interested in the ram's head necklace because it's unusual. And I'm interested in this because it's the first inkling of, of, of plot. Suddenly we're like, oh, actor but emerging or struggling. And stakes, this is important to him, presumably. So we have some context now. These characters have taken on a little bit of texture and we have a hint of a goal or a want. I wouldn't mind a line where you maybe just flesh this role out a tiny bit. Who is he playing? In what? We live our lives in a a specific world, not our super generic categories. Pick and commit to a character in a particular show, not an existing one, just one in this uh, fictional world. Then we get a flavour right? We get flavour, we get texture, we get tone, okay? Because this role might be slightly demeaning, you know, it might be a silly role, it it might be very exciting, it might be a major role, it will also actually put a much more vivid image in the reader's mind of what this narrator looks like in the flesh than any amount of on-the-nose telling, because whoever he's been cast by suggests something about what he looks like, right? The restaurant terrace shimmered gold, the candle flames restless in the breeze from the ocean. The crashing waves drowned out the piano, tinkling through the speakers. So, like, the prose here is okay. The sentences have a pleasant cadence to them. You have some visuals, some sound, so you're you're engaging a couple of the reader's senses. And you're showing things to them in interesting ways. The candle flames restless in the breeze from the ocean. That's a nice observation and it, and it flows nicely. So you've met the criteria of comprehensible, which believe me, Morgan, a lot of sentences I read do not meet. So that's no small achievement. And it's well cadenced. It flows. But the actual things you've picked to describe, the golden terrace, the candlelight, the sea, the piano, they are all horrendous cliches and not in a way that yet feels intriguing or subversive or invested with a Lynchian weirdness. We've got a blonde woman in a little black dress, a blue eyed dude in a blue suit having a candlelit dinner at a restaurant. Content-wise, it's like a stock photo and not one of those bizarre ones where there's like a woman in safety goggles threatening an avocado with a syringe. No amount of competent prose can dress up the fact that the beats of this scene and the choices you've made are all obvious, worn-out go-tos. And I, I, I hope I'm I'm not intentionally being a, like a hipster about this. It's just your story exists in an ecosystem of other stories, of literally millions of stories. Why should we read this one and not another? If there's nothing especially remarkable about your characters nor their environment, if they've got no broken edges we can tessellate with, then don't lead by describing them and the place they are. Give us the problem, the conflict, the interesting dilemma they face. Throw us into the guts of the drama, because, look, next line. I'm proud of you, honey, said Joy. A speaking role. To which he might reasonably reply, 
yes, I know it's a speaking role. We've already discussed this. That's why we're here at the restaurant celebrating. What what a peculiar thing to say. What you're doing here is borrowing a convention from TV where characters will pull up in a car and go, well, here we are at the summer camp. It's shorthand and audiences mostly don't note it, notice it and accept it. And simultaneously, it's complete shit and fine. If I'm watching a cartoon, I don't throw a cushion at the TV and yell, no one speaks like that, you toilet. And that's maturity. But there's no need for <laughs> this piece of shorthand in prose fiction, because if you're more interested in pace than subtlety, and there's loads of genres, and also loads of times in any story where you just want to, like, fucking say what you mean and get on with things, I'd go, honestly, I'd go all around the houses trying to, like, work info in that I, I could just say, and no reader is going to thank me for being vaguey McVeigerson about it. But, like, in fiction, you can just drop that information into the narrative, right? You can just go, we were celebrating my first proper television role, a speaking part. There, done. And your characters don't have to speak like mic'd up undercover agents trying to get their target to confess to money laundering on tape. If I'm honest, <laughs> in this section, I found your character's dialogue a little irritating. I... I suppose, and again, this is this is very idiosyncratic, but I suppose the stuttering comments slightly got my back up because I have, believe it or not, a situational stammer. And if someone pinched my cheek while I was stuttering and called me adorable for it, well, look, even if my wife did it, and I, I don't think she would, but even if she did, I should feel mightily put out. Maybe your intent is to show this character as, as vapid and self-absorbed, I don't know. But then perhaps this whole piece is supposed to run like a morality play where then the narrator heads to the dentist he hasn't got this thing sorted out he's going to be on tv and then he gets his mouth horribly messed up before his big speaking role and we're supposed to revel in his suffering as a kind of cosmic justice we've got some schadenfreude we go ha 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 you big vapid twat but to be honest i wouldn't want to read that story i know that's you that's not necessarily what the story is but i don't know there's a lot of argument online about whether you should make characters likable or not. And a lot of authors are, are, are quick to impute some secret ideological motivation behind our desire to have a protagonist who is likeable. Uh, and, 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 you know, they unpick that I concept of likability to begin with. Now, I, I don't have time to moonwalk through this particular minefield today, but it would be fun to come back to in another show. Uh, I think further discussion of this and breaking it down and examining it will be fruitful although spoiler alert I'm not going to conclude by telling you what you should think but I think it's important that we feel invested in the welfare of the characters you present us with and I just I just don't like they're clearly both well off they're reasonably happy so what's at stake the pride of casual suit dude I don't enjoy seeing unsympathetic people get punished you know maybe some readers do but I, I just what I'm saying is, I don't know what my way into this story is, Morgan. Who or what I'm, I'm rooting for and why I should believe and invest my time and emotions in this reality. Now, if that seems, if that seems incredibly damning uh, and insoluble, uh, it's not. Increasing the detail level, that I, as I've talked about, making choices and committing, that will immediately improve our investment in what's going on the world will seem more real and with more reality comes poignancy humanity all the good stuff so this isn't some uh, completely unfixable complaint i've just 
like landed i'm not done a turd on your doorstep wrapped in a bow and run away having set it on fire but i also think some of your choices here could be different ones first sentence for example because you've started way too early with a lot of stuff that's just you finding your way into the world first sentence narrator bites down on a curried oyster and his tooth breaks a curried oyster is an odd oddly squashy thing for a tooth to break but then now like actually i'm I should say now, I'm slightly ashamed to admit it, but I had my first experience of a rotten tooth breaking last month. It was a wisdom tooth. It, it had hurt for a bit. I, I left it and then the pain went away and I thought, oh, and then I started to have like bad breath that I hadn't had before that wouldn't go away no matter how much I clean my teeth. And that was because there was some compacted food inside the horrible rotten hollow and then it broke while I was eating. Gross. I know. I'm sorry. It didn't hurt weirdly and it did actually break while I was eating something soft i was biting down on a naan bread and it and it shattered it didn't hurt weirdly the nerve wasn't exposed and i went to the dentist they put a little cap on it which immediately came off and then they went they put a new one on um because the the tooth is is, is fucked it's gone and also it's a wisdom tooth it doesn't have one it's meshing with on the bottom and sometimes soon i've got to have it out and i'm a bit scared because some people on facebook have been saying that having their wisdom tooth out was the worst experience ever i've had about four teeth out before but when i was much younger and i can't remember much about it except that it was neither pleasant nor that horrendous anyway i digress i'm just letting you in on this is the moment of charming slightly disgusting vulnerability i was mentioning earlier look what i'm saying is start with the conflict right he bites down oh fuck he has that moment when you think please Please don't let what I think just happened have happened where you try to pause reality. Uh, and then he excuses himself. He goes to the bathroom to check. There's his tooth. It's shattered. It stinks. Oh, fuck. He comes back and Joy's there. And she's still full of optimism. She doesn't know what's happened yet. And she wants to talk to him about his role. So then we can learn why this broken tooth matters. So you open with your inciting incident, the, the tooth breaking, especially if your characters feel a little flat, as they do at the moment. But more than that, right, can you make your narrator maybe a little more sympathetic or a little more personally invested? I, I, just something that gives us a way into his world so that this whole drama matters to us. I, I don't know exactly what that thing would be that would make us more invested. I'm not going to write this story for you. And I know it's frustrating when someone says that. My editor once gave me a note to the effect. Something else needs to happen somewhere here. And I was like, what? What on earth do you mean? If I'd had a scene to put in it there, I would have written it. Can't you just tell me what to do? And you know what? I was wrong and she was right. And she was just respecting my sovereignty and, and, and my responsibility. I'm the fucker who's got to do the work. But as the author of the text, she was just saying, figure it out yourself. And... Actually, it was really helpful note, and the scene ended up being one of my favourites in the book. So, yeah, more specifics. Some kind of emotional hook, maybe some like little moment of kindness or vulnerability that leads us to feel invested in this narrator. And I'd consider discarding your first, second, even third impulse for what a character should look like or wear or be called or the decor of your location or the... um location itself i'm not saying that self-conscious quirkiness is the one true way at certain densities it can get deeply irritating in fact but we do live in a world of things not categories so make sure your characters do too 
And that, at that point, I'm going to down tools, toss my bloodied apron onto the bonfire and steal off across midnight fields, crowing salutations to the moon. If you'd like to submit something for a future episode of Death of a Thousand Cuts, here's what to do, my friend. Oh, on the first page of your novel, no more than 250 words. Don't send me more than that, I won't read it. This should be polished, edited, redrafted material. Don't send me your first draft. Make sure you've taken it as far as you can. So I'm critiquing you at the very edge of your competence. There's no point in my working on something that you've just farted out with no attempts at revision. Even if it's like your newest project and you want feedback on it, take the time to rework it. Ideally, finish the novel and send me something from a, a finished piece of work. It is a waste of your time and it's a waste of mine if you send me something that isn't your best work. I, I want to be critiquing your A-game so I can help you reach new heights, not so I can just point out stuff you kind of knew yourself. Please remember to include a title and your name. I only read out first names on the show, so don't worry. You can submit in relative anonymity. The episode isn't going to follow you around for the rest of your life. Drop, drop the um, submission itself as plain text into the body of your email. I don't need context or introductions or apologies. Just the facts, ma'am. Don't send me published author's works as a funny experiment to see if I'll rip a popular novel to shreds. Don't send me my own writing as if I would have put it out into the world without editing it to my, the best of my ability already, or as if I wouldn't fucking notice. And if I sound a little curmudgeonly, sorry, I'm not actually pissed off. That's mostly a joke. It's lovely that so many people are engaging with the show, even if some of you are being mildly funny dickheads about it. The standard of submissions and the number that meet all the guidelines are both really high. I'm actually so impressed. And that's been true for years. Um, even back in the days of the blog where I had... Fuck, I was backed up. I was backed up over a year and a half. There was an 18-month waiting list to be on the blog at one stage. And look, if you make some small error in your submission, if there's some minor bit of the guideline that you don't quite get right, I'm not going to be furious. I'm probably not even going to reject it. Just what I'm saying is please do your best to do these things because I'm working on my own here. I don't get paid to do any of this, so I have to take time out from my job that would earn me money. And I'm not resentful of that. I'm just saying the more of these things you can hit, the less extra work it generates for me. You can submit via my website, timclairpoet.co.uk. There's a link in the show notes. If you look on the right-hand column of my website, there's a button that says, contact me. Click it. That's also the way to get in touch if you just want to say hello. I love hearing from you all. I get so many messages nowadays. I actually... Actually, I was ended up going to bed past midnight because I spent an hour replying to messages and emails last night. It's I'm sorry if it takes me a while to get back to you or if um, something that you send me slips through the net and I don't get back at all. There's a bunch of emails that have just disappeared into my inbox that I meant to reply to. And I was, you know, I read them while I was looking after uh, my daughter or something. I mean, I was looking after, but, you know, I, I glanced at they appeared and I, I will I read everything you send me. But sometimes with the parenting life and just being um, still, you know, working with the challenges of organising myself, sometimes stuff disappears or it goes on too late and I don't catch it. But please be assured, I promise I do read them all and I deeply appreciate them. And as well as submissions, you can suggest topics for future shows. You can ask questions. Sometimes, you know, a single question might form the basis of an episode or I might uh, record an episode where I just answer a few questions 
in a row or sometimes it becomes clear from multiple questions that like lots of people are asking the same sort of thing so I can really make sure I do an episode that deals with that. You could request authors for me to interview. I, I, I try everyone that people ask who is someone who I would reasonably want to speak to uh, I, I'm, I, and whether they're high profile or whether they're emerging voices or you know whatever I'm interested in speaking to authors of all kind of background all kinds of genres so by all means suggest people and I will do my level best to approach them and if you are an author yourself by all means drop me a line and um, I, you know I might have you on the show and uh, you can also don't I mean don't pester um, authors that you'd like to see on the show but you can always um, you can always make them aware of the show as well uh, it's, it's a couple of people have done that actually uh, I think I think that's how I got Claire North on the show was someone tweeted her saying hey you should do this and she did and she was absolutely fantastic and it was a joy to speak to her so um, like as long as you do that um, in, a, in a kind of like polite and non spammy way then uh, by all means do that um, or you could just email me and let me know how your writing's getting on it makes my day to be in touch with so many interesting engaged writers you know it really does it's nice you know we don't have a water cooler as writers and um you do it you're all doing great guys and i'm very proud of you right for you if you'd like to support the show and this has been valuable to you then buy my novel it's called the honors it's published by canongate i know i go on about it but it's a way i can give you something extra back while you help me pay my bills and continue to write and to help other people to write both of those are things that I love. In the future, I'm, I'm going to do a few special episodes where I go into the honours in, in more depth and, and chat about the story behind it and the era it's set in and the research. You know, a lot of cool stuff that will give you some practical examples of an author's process, how you might go about the mammoth job of putting a novel together that's authentic and has got research and, has, uh, and maybe we'll talk about genre a little bit as well. Um, but also, I hope that those episodes uh, on you know, a purely selfish note will grab some of you who've been thinking oh I feel like I ought to get Tim's book but I'll do it later I hope I'm going to pull some of you off the fence I mean who sits on a fence cats robins pretty cool animals admittedly but wouldn't you rather be curled up with an awesome transporting story that becomes your favorite thing for a whole week that's just like a lovely bar of rich chocolate uh, or booze if you like, it's like just like it's just like a like it's just like a bottle of vodka, and you can curl up by the fire and get absolutely blotto on. Sure, you would. You'd love that. Links in the show notes, also on my website. You can click through that and get it with free postage. Share the show, please do. If you're a member of a writers group on Facebook, please post a link there. If you have a Twitter account, please share today's episode with your pals, folks. Those little links, those one-to-one -one recommendations are, they're the lifeblood of the show. Honestly, I can only, I can only do so much without looking like a, without just like, I've only got so much time. And also I'm not a credible advocate for my own work. Everything else, right? Ev almost every listener we have today, including probably you, came here not through my efforts, but by the force multiplier of other listeners sharing, retweeting, talking to each other in meet space, writing blog posts, handing on the resources. 
subscribe on SoundCloud, subscribe on YouTube, on Podcast Addicts. Consider taking two minutes to write us a little review on iTunes to help other writers find the show. I take that as a personal kindness if you do that. I'm sorry to go on about all this. I know it's not intrinsically, I'll try not to do this on every show, but I just want to repeat some of these things because they're so, so, so important. Um, If you can review my novel, The Honours, if you've read it, if you can review it on... um, Amazon it makes a huge difference makes a huge difference and thank you to those of you who've done that already finally I've got a coffee page that allows micro donations to help cover my running costs there's a link in the show notes and there's a link on my website as well it just says buy me a coffee you can click on that I've got monthly and annual hosting costs to keep the show on the road plus the day or so a week I spend writing it and arranging guests recording editing uploading and promoting I I love I love doing this But basically the only reason I can is because generous listeners like you have helped me out and continue to help me out with overheads. So if you'd like to give me a hand, two clicks and you can drop me a little something to keep the lights on. On my coffee page, you can also see lots of testimonies from people who've done the Couch to 80k writing bootcamp. So if you haven't tried that yet, if you're listening to this and you haven't had a go at that, I don't care where you are with your writing. If you've never written a word in your life or if you are an author with a bunch of novels behind you um, or anywhere in between, genuinely, I think it works at all levels, right? If you haven't tried it, what the hell are you waiting for? Seriously, 10 minutes a day, six days a week. You're going to fucking love it. Honestly, read a couple of the testimonies that are on my coffee page. You can, I, I, and like I say, I've had over 100 emails from people who've done the course. Uh, thousands of people have started the course now. Um, try episode one. I don't think you'll regret it, but if you do, you'll have wasted 15 minutes, right? Oof enough from me thank you so much for um putting up with that and listening this far i'm not going to do these reminders every episode these housekeeping bits i i know you know lots of people do them on podcasts and they kind of all bleed together but one i've put it at the end so you can just switch off if you don't want to listen um so if you're still listening thank you i say them because they're so so important to a niche little show like ours and a signal boost from the right person an article in the right place just like one or two of those things uh, I had a, a retweet uh, a couple of weeks ago from someone with over a million followers. Immediately, uh, the show's the show's listening figures for that week doubled, uh, and that's that's happened. It's it's so it, all it takes is these tiny little chances, and other people can find it. And I do think there's a huge audience out there for what we do here. So, you know. I'd like my work to find a home in people's hearts, to write great stories and and to help you write great stories. You know, that's my life's work. I love making stories and whether I'm making them myself or I'm helping other people generate them, I'm happy. Also, I have to be able to like keep a roof over my head, but we're working on that. Okay, adios, dear friend. Look after yourself. Ten minutes timed writing on whatever you want. Do you hear me? I'm giving you a task. Do ten minutes... Just time it, set a timer on your phone, on a egg timer, whatever. Ten minutes of writing on whatever you want. No filter, just pick up a pen and paper, pick up your laptop, just go. It doesn't have to be on your work in progress. In fact, I suggest it's not, just whatever's in your head. Write it down, get going. It's a warm-up, it's a workout, it's teaching your subconscious, hey, it's safe, the war is over, you can come out and play. Don't think about it, do it. Right, heartfelt love to you, good luck with your writing. We'll speak soon.